Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Uh, hello, everyone out there, and welcome to today's ODI Fridays. Uh, so, welcome to everyone outside, welcome to everybody in the room as well. So, we're here today to hear from Moore and Tim about the book, The State of Open Data, which they've been working on over the last year, along with over 60 authors and over 200 collaborators, including several of the ODI team. Uh, so, they're going to be running us through that book, and we'll be taking questions at the end. Uh, for those who are watching outside the room, you can use the hashtag ODI Fridays. We'll be watching that for questions. You can also tag in uh, at State of Open Data or use the hashtag, hashtag State of Open Data because more and Tim have been doing that a lot and their other co-authors have been doing a lot of talks around the world around this book and it will help join up those conversations. Uh, but for now, if we could ask the people in the room, just be aware, be aware you know, with live mic, there's people watching at home. So if you do want to ask questions or make comments, ask for a microphone, and then people may be able to hear you. We hope those will work, particularly if you hold it correctly, which I often fail to do. Uh, so just be aware of that audience at home. We're all part of the experience. But for now, I'll pass over to Moore and Tim. Hello, everybody. Let's, let's just get people around. Uh, so yes, my name is Moore. I'm one of the co-authors. This is the State of Open Data. This is also the State of Open Data. Lovely book. 574 pages. Uh, you can get it online. Uh, but I will present to you a bit about what this is, why we have done it, and how. So, State of Open Data. You can look at it at stateofopendata.od4d.net. It's a beautiful website. If you want to save the world from paper, go there and have a look. Um, it's a project, and it's a book, and it's all in open access, just as we like to do in the open spaces. Um, and we started it because we wanted to know what happened in the past of open data to understand what can we actually see and understand and make recommendation for the future. Sounds really easy. Also sounds a bit... Weird, because open data is only 10, 12 years old, so what can we look? But Tim will discuss about it in a second. Um, so do go there and check out our, I think it's a beautiful site, but I'm biased. Um, so who's behind it? So we work with the IDRC, International Development Research Center Canada, um, that are basically the initiator behind the OD4D, the Open Data for Development, and it's a global partnership that creates an ecosystem to understand open data and other issues like government transparency and how it all creates to the global um, sustainable development. OD4D has hubs all over the world, um, going from uh, Latin America to Sub-Saharan Africa to MENA, uh, and received a lot of support through the years for the funders here. Uh, and there's a lot of research coming from OD4D that you should look. At, but this, is, this book is part of that initiative. So these are some of our authors uh, on this book. This book has 64, six, 66 authors um, from five continents uh, and 24 countries. A uh, third of them are from the global south. We try to make it as inclusive as we can um, and as diverse as we can. Uh, but we found that it's really tricky still to try to get people from the global south to contribute to the book for many reasons. We're very open about all of the process that we've done. So if you're going to our blog on Medium, you can see how we actually wrote about it and reflect about it and how you can do an open research that is inclusive for everyone. Um, so I'll just explain what we try to do as well. Great. So 
while creating this book, this research, we try to do a methodology that is open and collaborative. So we started that each of our authors got um, basically a questionnaire to fill with trying to understand this environment that they're looking at. So it looked at the history, at issues, at actors, at funding, at events, etc. Then we took this scan, we called it an environment scan, and we put it online on a Google Doc and basically opened it up to the world to see how many contributions we'll get. And we got hundreds of them, which was very, very um, good for us and very encouraging. So these communities' inputs are still live. So if you go to our website, you can see the environment scan and how all of this chapter begin. Uh, and you can also try and get the data out of it. And you can still actually comment on it if you want as well. Uh, but it's there live. If other people want to build their research on top of it, you can. Um, so it's there. Then we took this all community input. We gave it to our authors to create a chapter from it. Um, then we had the review mechanism with our review board, which was actually 50-50 male-female compared to our authors. Um, and we took it to another review, and we made this report that you see here. It's not a bulletproof methodology, but I think it's try to also see how, if we're speaking about communities and sectors, we can get them into the research and into the work that we're doing actively, um, and not only giving them, us as a community, something at the end. And we hope that this is still not the end meaning that you will discuss this book, that you criticize this book and the chapters, because I don't know how many of you read the whole book, but like we do want this to be some kind of also a conversation and not only something that you read and forget about. So hopefully this ways of doing this methodology, but also coming and speaking to you today and to others um, will help us do that. So we're very grateful for the ODI for giving us this space to do that. Um, so yeah, so now I'll give... I'll pass the mic to Tim, or I'll just move around because he has a mic, and you can speak. Um, so, so my challenge now was framed the project, how we pulled together a, a review of 10 years of open data. My challenge is now in 10 or 15 minutes to give you an overview of what's in the 580 pages here. So I'll try and do my best. Luckily, we have a couple of the authors who've contributed chapters here, uh, and I'll be getting them to share a bit deeper dive into their chapters as well as we go. So in the book, we have five different lenses that we use to look at the state of open data. We say, what's happened in this last decade? And the first lens is a historical lens. Um, and for each chapter online, you'll find there's a timeline looking at key events that have happened. But we also take a timeline throughout the, the whole history of this last decade. And one of the recommendations we make at the end of the book for, for researchers particularly is that we need to document the history of open data. We need to tell the story of what's happened. Because when we came to look at different sectors where open data is being used, different projects, we found uh, a web of broken links and, and abandoned websites and things that have gone offline. And we found not a, as strong as there should be historical understanding of where we've come from and where we're heading. And having that perspective is really important to strengthen advocacy, engagement and activity in future. So what we do in the, the, the opening to the book is we, we look at the evolution of open data through the uh, themes at the International Open Data Conference. There have now been five editions of that conference. And as you look at their agendas, you, as you look at what's discussed, you see a real evolution of a movement. 
in 2010, it was all about portals and data sets. It, people wanting to get their data.gov online, publish as many data sets, the UK and US competing over who can count the most data sets published. It was very much focused on that supply side. Very quickly, by 2012, the second conference that happened in, in Washington, uh, the focus was an impact. People were saying, we're not just doing this to get data out there. We want to achieve real-world impacts with this data. By 2015, that had focused into a sectoral turn, a, a recognition that you can't talk about impact in general. You've got to talk about what is open data doing for health? What's open data doing for agriculture? What's open data doing in education? And we saw a real... Uh, flowering of different communities of practice looking at open data in their specific areas of work. By 2016, when the, the conference was in Madrid, the focus was on setting global goals, but looking at where impact can be had locally. So we have things like the International Open Data Charter that grew out of the G8 Open Data Charter that sets global principles, but that also involves a recognition that where this really happens is the city level, the local level, the community level where impact is secured. And by 2018, some real critical arguments are coming in, some new themes, open data no longer the only data debate in the, in, in, in the policy arena, lots of talk about artificial intelligence, about big data, lots of discussions of data infrastructure starting to emerge, um, but also a sense that maybe open data is also under threat. That was the first time the conference had sessions that were, were saying, is this whole agenda under threat? And so that history gives us a sense of a movement that's really matured and developed, but also that has to find its way into the future. And when we started pulling together those first submissions of chapters into the book, we had this feeling that there was a bit of an identity crisis, open data facing, uh, as we put it, maybe coming up to its difficult teenage years, working out what its identity is and is going to be. Um, so we see that it's, it's something that has moved from the margins to the mainstream. Ten years ago, it was small groups of geeks talking about open data. Now it's there in international policy statements. You know, it's, it's, it's a phrase and framing that, that prime ministers and presidents will still use, trips off the tongue, is part of major policy debates. But as it moves from that, that margins to the mainstream, we get a question of do we have one open data movement or do we now have many different movements? So sectoral movements, how, how linked up are they? Is what's going on in agriculture connecting with what's happening in anti-corruption or in education or in environmental spaces? And we've also got this challenge of confronting the dark side of data. In the last five years, we've become much, much more aware that while data can be a force for good, it can also be abused, misused, used to control. And that's something that wasn't there in those early narratives of open data. And, and, and we've, we've not always found a brilliant way to integrate and, and understand. And so one of these identity challenges for open data is the move not to just say, open by default and only open by default, but to get to that greater nuance. There was also a real trend that came out across those early uh, chapter drafts of, of the people, the people who were the outside agitators and activists are now hired into the World Bank, hired into city governments, hired into national governments, are driving things from the inside. And that creates a real shift in the character of a community and a movement from something that's maybe insurgent to now institutionalising. And, and that needs a moment of reflection to think about what that means for movement building, community building, knowledge sharing. And there was also this sense of is open 
last decade's debate, or is it a golden thread that needs to run through all of the data policy agendas we've got? Um, now, uh, as a spoiler, we very much conclude that it is a golden thread that needs to run through wider data policy agendas, but that does need work to articulate what that is and renew uh, leadership on open data. Um, and really, that, that's what came out as we looked at this sense of an identity crisis. As we peeled away deeper and worked on the revisions of chapters with people, we saw actually there's many, many stories of impact. There's many stories of progress. And, and in fact, what seemed to be at work was Amara's famous adage about technology that we overestimate progress in the short term and underestimate progress in the long term. And actually, over that decade of 10 years, so much has been shifted and so much has progressed, but that's been trickier to see when perhaps we, we got beyond the hype cycle and, and found um, that the, the, the reality of building data infrastructures is a longer-term project than some of the early sales pitches presented. Um, so we find that need to, to redefine and re-emphasise the importance of open approaches, particularly in our current political landscape, and to recognise that in the evolution of an open data movement today, we can't rely on the idea that everyone involved comes from the same open source or open government cultures. These many movements have many roots now. Um, after a decade, many of the early leaders have moved on. Um, and so it's important that we're collectively creating the space for supporting and championing new leaders who are keeping openness at the heart of our data vocabulary. Um, and before I move on to look at the different sections of the book, on, on that I want to just pick up on a particular insight from David Eves and colleagues when they write about North America, Australia and New Zealand that backs up the importance of retaining a focus on open data even as the data agenda broadens and shifts. Um, in, in their chapter they ask us to consider the counterfactual of what would have happened in the last decade if we'd not had the open data movement around, if we'd not had governments first thinking about the value of data through open data. They say otherwise we'd have big data analytics teams all being outsourced instead of governments building that capacity in-house because they understand the value of data. We'd have even more black boxes where open data has given government a tool when it engages with all these new data agendas to ask critical questions about what's happening. It's something that um, our authors of the Eastern Europe and Central Asia chapter put as open data has allowed people to hone their technical intuition in ways that they're applying beyond open data itself across the whole of government technology. And so we see this history, this evolution of an open data movement. We see the spread globally of open data. In the book, we've got chapters on seven different regions. Uh, looking at the, the, the way that history has played out. Um, I'm not going to go through in detail what's happened in each region because that would take me many, many hours. Uh, and I'd encourage you to really dig into those chapters, particularly from regions you don't often think about or work on because I think there's inspiration there and learning to see our own work through a different lens. Um, but I do want to highlight something that really came out as we read across them, which is that whilst open data has spread globally, it's framed and sustained in quite different ways around the world right now. The narratives and the language being used are very substantially. And we have to think about what that means, both for the way we then talk about uh, open data practice, but also what it means for the way projects might evolve. And does this mean uh, 
same, same product, different packaging? Or does this mean in some cases the product is being changed to fit different markets, different settings? Um, so in Middle East and North Africa, you won't hear open data mentioned much. You'll hear much more of a language of data-driven innovation. And you'll see the partners are more likely to be universities and private sector than civil society organisations. Whereas in uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, it is the accountability and anti-corruption NGOs who've been the real drivers of open data work, um, those newer CSOs who've, who've emerged, who've taken on this, this kind of agenda. In the European Union, the public sector information narrative is still strong and still a lever that can be used to pursue kind of policy change. Whereas in Africa, sustainable development language is much more the framing within which open data work's taking place. And that also highlights the role uh, of national statistical offices as real drivers uh, of, of the agenda there. Um, in Asia, our authors look at the fact that it's much more uh, national level activity right now, but they call for a move to the local level. Uh, and in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, there's a real different character to the community that, that, that civil society is really well networked in a way that maybe existed in Europe five years ago, but Europe's perhaps lost some of its strong civil society networking and, and needs to learn from how Latin America has sustained that. And lastly, in North America, Australia and New Zealand, the focus very much on government analytics, on building teams who can use data inside government, but those teams then using open data and proprietary data interchangeably, highlighting that need for a continued kind of agenda and focus on openness. So we look across all those regions. Then in the larger sector of the book, and I'm not expecting anyone to read this off the slide, uh, we look at 16 different sectors where open data is used. And it was a really hard job to pick which sectors to focus on. Um, there are many more since we've been kind of writing that we wish we'd dug into. And that's been really encouraging to see all the different settings in which open data is being used, uh, all the ways in which people are adapting it uh, and using it to meet particular policy challenges. Um, so encouragingly, in each of these chapters, you will find some real diverse examples of data in use, uh, but you'll also find diagnosis of areas where further development is needed. So, for example, in the transport chapter, uh, the authors note the real success of standards like GTFS for opening up transit data, but they note that a lot of transit data isn't openly licensed. And a lot of times, you know, the data you get in your mobile app turns out not to be available as open data. It's been provided uh, through a deal between the transit company and Google or someone else. And so the rosy picture maybe isn't as shiny as, as, as it needs to be. And we need to keep an eye very closely that the progress made early in open data is maintained and also that we continue pushing forward. So they argue until we have open fair data as well as timetable data, we're not going to get to mobility as a service in the ways that might be possible, or at least we're not going to get to that in a distributed open marketplace without monopoly providers uh, taking that space. In the chapter I contributed on land ownership, we also note that where land ownership data is available, it is being used by citizens, by civil society, by entrepreneurs, uh, and by journalists to uh, explore what's happening with land ownership, to highlight corruption, to change markets. 
Um, and we also note that a lot of progress has been made on responsible data practices in the land space, real sensitive use of licensing terms to recognise the balance between publicity and transparency and privacy, and to recognise the power dynamics that exist around land, recognising you can't talk about data in general, you have to understand data in relation to the particular realities it, it relates to. If it's data about land, then... You know, when access to land is unequal, opening up data has to recognise that and be sensitive to the, 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 the political and economic dynamics. Um, however, we also find there's no global initiative on, on land data transparency. So if we compare to sectors like aid transparency or extractives or anti-corruption work on open contracting, we see powerful initiatives that have really pushed the agenda forwards on opening up data. And we see other sectors like land where there's a real potential for that to happen, but no initiative doing it. And, and, and that calls for some deeper research into uh, how these relatively low-cost initiatives can have a substantial impact on shifting the norm sector by sector about what is or isn't open. In a very similar way in telecommunications, an area we'd expect, it's digital, it's, it's data rich, surely we'd have a lot of open data about the telecom sector, yet we don't right now. And there's the, the startings of an initiative that that chapter explores to say, let's open up telecoms data, particularly in the developing world, in order to really get the change in connectivity, access, equity of access that we need. Um, and, and as I've said there, it's important to note that a lot of the substantive progress on open data is not coming from organisations setting up data portals or publishing ad hoc data sets. It's coming from these sectoral initiatives that are adopting open data as a method to deliver better coordination, greater transparency or some other form of change. So projects like Open Active that are here uh, at the, hosted here at the ODI or Open Ownership seeking to open up corporate information, these are the sorts of projects that are really driving forward open data activity around the world because they have a problem, they have a data infrastructure they've identified, they have policy, they have technology and they put those things together to drive forward change. Um, and so by taking the sectoral lens, looking at different sectors where open data is used, we're also able to look at how open data is embedded within these wider fields. Is it at the heart of the agriculture world or is it just a small community on the side of agriculture? Is it there uh, shaping government finance discussions or, or just showing some prototypes around the edge? Um, and that's an approach we also take in the education chapter, uh, which is my segue to saying we've, we're also really glad to have with us uh, Javier and Leo, who uh, put together the education chapter. And I'm going to get them to give you three or four minutes overview of what they found. Um, yeah, well, lovely to be here. Um, so exciting to be part of this um, fantastic project. Um, I thought um, we could open um, our... Um, little cameo appearance just by talking about how we came um, really into um, kind of working in this in this space and um, we were, were both working in education and, and specifically researching open education topics um, for quite a few years and um, and really in the open education uh, space what we've seen is a sort of maturing of the open education movement um, so that there's there's uh, it's sort of begun with a lot of a lot of fanfare, a lot of kind of um, utopian visions around how simply making stuff available and putting an open license on it is going to um, kind of uh, massively transform the world. And as time has gone on, uh, 
more kind of critical questions have surfaced and there's been a lot more discussion of like how the, the, these things are more, more difficult than we think and does everybody have the opportunity to participate and is everyone's, um, d does everybody want access to the same open resources and things like that. And, um, and so we, we were also quite, we were interested in that, but also in the fact that we have these parallel open movements that seem to um, talk in kind of somewhat siloed conversations. And, uh, and so we, we were also quite interested in, in, uh, in thinking about what if we could get these movements more in, com in conversation with each other? What could we learn from each other? And are we seeing similar, uh, I guess, moves towards criticality around what we're trying to do across these different open movements? Um, and so it was with the um, uh, Open Education Working Group uh, which is a, a sort of a sub subgroup of um, open knowledge um, that um, that we we saw a few years ago. There, there was there was a, a bit of work around open data and education happening, and, um, and and so we kind of brought our initial idea there, which was to call for people to uh, give us um, case studies of work that they were doing with open open data in education, and that and that led to um, editing a um, a collection of uh, really interesting case studies. And, um, and then um, further research and um, ultimately to, um, to, to this, to these um, key um, findings of our chapter, which Javier, you're going to talk about now. Oh, yeah, thanks. So what, what we were thinking when we started writing this chapter is to divide the three key or main areas in which open data affects education directly or indirectly. So the first is how open data can inform better educational policies. Normally, education policies are made without educators around. That's quite normal in our field, mostly for like primary and secondary education. Educators or teachers are never involved in policymaking, but they should be one of the main providers of, of data. So if data and education is, is transparent, may foster better policies. The other one was where we said, okay, we need to also look at the data and education with a bit of care. And there are too many ethical concerns about how children are being datafied, how education is being datafied, and children are not taught to challenge, they don't know how to challenge their own datification. So it's, it's a bit of like, okay, they say producing data about uh, school results, for example, or performance might lead to better educational choices, but that's not true. It only works for the people that can have a choice and stigmatize children. So we wanted to talk about the, the issues. If you, don't know, if you don't manage data with care, children are the first one to be affected, but they can never challenge that data. And um, finally, it's like we've been working with Leo for, for a few years, um, and people were, first we started looking at us like, well, you're too crazy. No, they're fine with us. Uh, how to use open data in educational context as open educational resources. So if you look at the definition of, or the traditional definitions of open educational resources, data is never included. So we think if you bring in data to the classroom from primary to university, um, that might develop the skills that people need to challenge the, the reality and, and the politics. So yeah, that, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, so, so this chapter, like many, really explores how uh, within that wider field, open data is finding niches 
making connections, but there's more stronger connections to be made. And I think this comes out also the health chapter, for example, reminds us that open data conferences, you know, we can get a thousand people along to things now. A standard health conference, you're going to find 20, 30,000 uh, people there. How are we connecting open data ideas into those other fields? Are we, have we got communities that are, are, are talking inwards or are talking outwards? And how can we give communities who've found ways to use data effectively, who've built that mature understanding of how to use this sensitively as a tool of change, how can we now support those groups to go out back to their kind of home communities and build capacity there? Um, and that brings me to some of these cross-cutting issues that we then look at in a section called Issues uh, in Open Data, uh, where we see the real growing sophistication of the open data field. Um, for example, a number of issues that were not on the agenda a few years ago, like gender equity and indigenous data sovereignty, that are increasingly in focus and that call for us to keep re-evaluating some of the early assumptions that were made in open data practice. For example, in the Indigenous Open Data Sovereignty chapter, the authors offer a new challenge to the idea of open by default, where an open by default approach assumes that nation-state governments have the right to open up data about Indigenous territories without the consent of those populations. This reminds us that the real world is often much, much more complex than our simple datafied narratives uh, assume and that the designers of data sets and of data policies really need to understand the environments that their data is describing and to consider the power dynamics and the different interests that their decisions affect. It moves us from just saying, let's get some raw data and open it up, to recognising the power of that data to describe and shape the world brings with it a great responsibility to make sure that is designed in inclusive ways. Similarly, in the gender equity chapter, uh, the authors really highlight how gender impacts issues of access and infrastructure, representation within data sets, and labour and leadership within the open data communities as a whole. And they call for a commitment to gender equity that addresses both gender bias within data collection and publication, as well as the gender bias and patterns of exclusion that mean women are often not in the room when decisions about data are being discussed and challenge us to, to really say we can no longer accept data that's not considering inclusion and considering its inclusive impacts um, as, as, as good data. Um, in this section, there's also a real focus on the growing importance of data infrastructure, a chapter from Peter and Lee here at the ODI, uh, and the work on privacy uh, in this section also really highlights how tools like the data spectrum also uh, created here at the ODI have helped the open data field move towards a much more nuanced understanding of how to manage privacy, recognising that we need to strike a balance on a case-by-case -case basis, again, understanding the politics and the dynamics of particular data sets. So, for example, corporate ownership data, recognising there's a trade-off between the publicity of directors' information and the privacy that people uh, deserve, and, and recognising that this isn't a kind of general principle that can be applied once, but is something that has to be played out depending on the subject of the data. Um, and in the algorithms and AI chapter in here, I make the argument that there's been relatively limited engagement, surprisingly limited engagement, I think, between AI and open data communities over the last few years. Um, and the way that open data is mostly presented in artificial intelligence policy is 
in a sort of circa 2010 raw material for AI industries kind of framing. Um, yet open data can also be seen as a strategic tool for evaluating bias in AI and addressing gaps in source data to, to try and remove that bias, as well as a distributed alternative to the centralizing logic of many machine learning approaches, which rely on centralized black box decision making, where open data has this alternative narrative of distributing power to people and communities to understand their own reality, to critique that data, create things with it and make decisions at a more localized level. And there's a whole space there, I think, still to be unpacked and explored of, of not just you know, open data as an input for, for this, this, this kind of growing uh, world of, of algorithmic uh, decision making, but open data as an alternative as well and a check and a balance on that. Um, and in that vein, we argue that AI literacy is best taught as part of open data literacy, uh, equipping people to solve problems with data rather than teaching people to have a particular kind of algorithmic hammer that sees everything uh, as a nail. Um, which brings me to the data literacy chapter, which I particularly want to highlight, um, because in many, many chapters, particularly the sectoral chapters, data literacy comes up as an absolutely critical theme. It comes up in education, like how do we use open data as an open educational resource to build people's data literacy? In many settings, uh, authors diagnose that the, the lack of focus on data literacy means we've not capitalised enough on the improvements in data supply. And so in that chapter, Mariel Garcia Montes and uh, Dirk Slater argue that we need to really uh, redouble our efforts to focus on data literacy building, to recognise that data is a team sport. It's something that's not about one individual person having the unicorn data skills, but about having people with the mix of skills to be data architects, data engineers, data social scientists, data visualisers, people with questions, people with skills to answer. And they argue for a, a real focus on social learning and on learning that's focused on social justice. Um, and in that chapter, they find that while there have been some small investments in training and capacity building, when you actually try and add it up, it really is a drop in the ocean. I think we, we didn't manage to count more than 20 or 30,000 people going across evaluations of different kind of recognised data literacy programmes. It's, it's, it's the tens of thousands of people we can count having been trained in open data literacy rather than the hundreds of thousands and millions that are needed to get the benefit from those millions of data sets that have been opened up. So I think that's something we put in the recommendations to funders particularly, to say we really need to focus on this much, much more. And that brings me to the last section uh, of the book I want to focus on, which is our, our stakeholder section, uh, where we look at how different stakeholders are playing a role. One of those obviously being funders uh, and investors. This map comes from those environment scans more mentioned, where uh, the, the chapter authors here, Fernando Perini and, and Michael Jarvis, took all those scans and looked at who are people mentioning as funders of different activities, who are the kind of central funders bringing communities together, who are the people out on the edges maybe looking at a particular niche geography or niche area. And it was quite encouraging to see the number of different players and actors in the space supporting open data work, either as open data or simply because it's a tool to solve problems those funders care about. Um, and we look at a number of different stakeholders. We look at how governments uh, are trying to strike this careful balance between institutionalising open data and, and building their own governance frameworks, 
whilst avoiding the creation of new gatekeeping roles and stifling the collaboration and creative space that open data opened up. And that's something we really have to kind of watch in the coming years, that we want good governance of data, but good governance of data within government frameworks can sometimes mean new, new hurdles, new barriers, new gatekeeping. So helping government through that journey, I think, is key. Um, and for civil society, Chris Wilson has a wonderful chapter which uh, kind of talks about civil society's dogged optimism uh, around open data's potential and its very flexible role filling the gaps that, that others maybe haven't filled. But that also creating confusion at times of what's a startup, what's civil society, and also highlighting the need for us to build the capacity of existing civil society, not just startup tech civil society, to work with data so that it's the established organisations with mass memberships, with movements, with a base who understand social care or who understand health or understand service delivery at the local level so that they too are getting data capacity, the ability to use open data, not relying just on a, a number of small kind of internationally focused uh, organisations. And of course, uh, with government, civil society, we also look at the private sector, which is my segue to our other author, author segment, which is to hand to Carla to come and share with us some of the findings from the, the private sector chapter. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. Um, I'm Carla Bonina. I'm an assistant professor at Surrey Business School and also at the Latin America Initiative of um, Open Data. Um, First, congratulations again, because this has been an amazing effort. I, I do encourage you to go through many of the chapters that I think many of you are interested in very different areas. So very briefly, what I would like to share with you of this chapter, we're here, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, as Tim mentioned, and I think this is also part of the power of this book, we have a history or the sort of, you know, timeline that would highlight some of the points. And I think this is a very good example on how the private sector really, you know, exploded. When two things happened, 2012, uh, McKinsey, um, the consultancy, estimated that the benefits, the economic benefits of open data were about, you know, between three and five trillion dollars. So people were like, well, there is business here. And then in 2013, um, the Climate Corporation, um, have you heard about this company? Probably they were using open data plus other sources of data um, to create, you know, a very good <laughs> company uh, to predict weather and other things that Monsanto acquired for over a billion. So this we could say was the first unicorn, you know, in the open data world. So basically what we're trying to tap in this chapter that I encourage you to go and there are many more points are four main things and that we can summarize in these key points. Um, there was always this thing, is there a thing or, 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 or a sector of open data as a business? And we find that well, businesses are either users, intermediaries or producers of open data and rarely will define themselves as an open data enterprise um, as, as a sector per se. Um, basically, thousands of companies are using open data for their own business intelligence, marketing decisions, improving or opening markets and so on. We do have the what we call the open data intermediaries that we see, and, and this is very home you know, to what the ODI is doing, companies that started their own business as, you know, packaging uh, open data, selling new services based on that, and that's what we call um, the intermediaries, and others that are simply open up open data um, and producing them. Um, we also call that data collaboratives, and you can see many more examples in the chapter. Um, 
we also have the incubators and accelerators have supported many of these companies or especially startups to flourish, being the other day, very good examples. Um, as you know, in, in we highlighted in other parts, this is not very much the case, I would say very rarely in the global south, but we do have very good accelerators and, and incubators, especially in Europe and North America. There's been this promise that open data is going to make, you know, small, uh, um, um, I'm just jumping here, sorry, uh, just, it's going to be a great resource for small and medium enterprises. Well, we still don't, don't see uh, that really happening, especially because at some, uh, on the one hand, you have the advantage that you don't have to deal with lots of um, legacy systems and so on, but then data literacy and other sorts of resources are really lacking. So we still have much more to do in that space. Um, definitely um, large and, and I mean all sort of business uh, using open data for you know operations and new products and services and and also definitely a great space for innovation and something that also links to the measurement problem is that we'll still done know how much economic impact this is really creating. And we mostly have, um, you know, perspective or, you know, sort of um, uh, post-hoc analysis of some of the measurements, but this is very much intertwined with many other things happening. So really grasping how much exactly in open data is creating an economic value is still uncertain. And with that note, I will encourage you to look at many more details that we have in that chapter. And thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you, Carla. So uh, each of the chapters has that sort of depth to it. And I hope you can uh, find them useful, uh, both giving conceptual tools, data, references to follow up, uh, and resources to use in thinking about your practice and, and future practice. What I want to close with, though, uh, and bring more back to, to join me for this, uh, is some of the recommendations we put in uh, at the end of the book. So we called it uh, Histories and Horizons, and in looking to those horizons, we come up with uh, four kind of groups of recommendations uh, which are uh, targeted at different stakeholder groups. Researchers, funders, policymakers, and practitioners. Cool. So I'll start with the two at the top. So researchers, uh, first of all, we need to document history. One of the main findings of writing this book is that Wayback Machine is our best friend. Even though we are all technologies, like technologists, we're speaking about data infrastructure and how to save data, we still had a lot of dead links that we had to go and check and to find. Um, so we need to do better in document our history so we can do more projects like these and understand from them, but also just not putting it in a graveyard. We need to start to compare between open and non-open. Most of the research that looks out there looks at what open does, and we're not usually looking at what is open or semi-open. The ODI start to do some work on this, but we need more in academia as well, to check what are the benefits, where stuff works, when not, when we can learn from one another. This is not a competition. And we also need to have more quantitative evidence and natural experiments. We're speaking about this book, this is very qualitative, but we do need to have more um, quantitative ways of looking at open data, understand it, uh, measure it even sometimes when needed, uh, and understand how we can use different research methods in part of our research. 
then if we're working for funders who are really important, like everyone else, uh, we need to basically see how we're mainstreaming and creating a movement building. So it's really important to invest in core open data and infrastructure, but not everyone always understand what it means. It's not the most sexiest thing that you want to sell uh, or you can sell. So how we explain it better, not making it sexy, but making it important so people can actually invest in the infrastructure that we need because there is a market failure and the market is not going to invest in it. Um, how we can integrate open data approaches into sectoral programs. So how can we basically say that if we have an agriculture program, there is an open data element to it. Or how we can say that if we're having an anti-corruption uh, program, we have a data literacy um, into it so we can actually integrate it. So it's not only looking at core funding, but how we can integrate open data and others to create better impact. And then we need to focus funding on open data literacy. If we want more people to use, if we want actually something to happen with open data, we need to teach people data literacy, but also what is open data means and how they can use it. And the policymaker recommendations mirror that in, in many ways. The idea really here uh, is after 10 years, some people are saying we should move on. We've done the open data thing. Let's kind of now focus on just embedding this purely in sectoral programming. We don't need to focus on open data anymore. And we find that's not the case. We still need to keep building core skills, experience, knowledge around openness and renewing that leadership but at the same time, we need to embed this because that, that's not going to be the answer 10 years from now again, that we need to keep on about the open thing. It's going to be this needs to become part of business as, as usual, embedded in practice in uh, specific programs. So the starting point for that as a policymaker is look at the potential open data elements in any data-related project. And that doesn't mean now just publishing a data set. That might mean saying, you know, we are... Uh, looking at health systems, we're looking at what should be open. So that's not the health records themselves, that's the metadata about system performance that can be accountable and open. So it's finding the right level to put openness within a programme. This idea of maintaining some of the space for permissionless innovation and civic engagement. As we institutionalise, as we recognise, we need to talk to our data users. We need to find those people, invite them in for a meeting. We need to make sure those meetings don't become closed-door chats between a few small stakeholders, but maintain the kind of openness that led us to, to get the generative space that, 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 that's been so useful so far. And to have open data, uh, an openness as a golden thread across our data policy. And then for practitioners, the recommendations really focus on thinking politically and increasing inclusion. We can't approach any of these open data problems as technical alone anymore, and we hope the book is a real resource to see how different people have thought politically in different sectors, have understand it, understood the wider context they're working in, uh, how people have prioritised inclusion and equity and how we are providing that renewed leadership uh, for openness into the next decade. So that's it. I think time for questions. A lot. <laughs> Thank you very much. The, so we're open for questions now. So again, for people uh, watching at home, at work, down the park, wherever you may be, a few tweeters in, either tagging in ODIH. It is now. <laughs> so, 
uh, for people who have got questions, uh, for if you could tweet at them who are watching at home or not in the office, if you could please uh, tweet me now for tagging ODIHQ or put, use the hashtag ODI Fridays, uh, then we'll be able to pick those up and ask them. But also, want to just actually, I think I'll start off with one question for myself, and then we'll go to the room here as well. I saw there's one hand already, but so one question for myself. So I spent this morning at a a conference on competition policy where I was taking the principles of openness and data and applying those to problems in competition policy. And in there, I know I find I need to use, I talk about combining open and shared, open approaches, but using open and shared data to deliver on some of the competition challenges, you know, like big platforms and things like that. I was wondering if those themes, about the combining of the different parts of the spectrum, how that, how, what you learned about that during the production of the book. So I think it, it does come up in a number of settings, particularly, say, the health chapter, where that's really in clear view, that we have data that's clearly private, data that can be open, and negotiating what's in that shared space in the middle then becomes where the real work is to be done. So I think some sectors are, are picking up on that and really recognising it. I think there is this interesting challenge that sometimes that language creates that space for the new gatekeeping, and which is why we need to find ways in open data communities to constructively engage with that, to be the, the watchdogs pulling it towards open where it can be, but also recognising that space of shared. I think what we do find in the book very clearly is people have uh, got a much more nuanced understanding now than a simple kind of binary. And, and it was fascinating. Things like the open definition and licensing really didn't come up that much, much less than I thought they would of people kind of saying, here's a, here's a strict binary line. We're less purist than what we used to be in the beginning, uh, but we still need to basically understand the terms and speak to them. But we're less purist. It's not <laughs> a bad thing. Uh, it's all about solving the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you both. Uh, so first questions in the room. If you could speak into the microphone, just for the people out. Thank you. I'm Bill Aula from London School of Economics, and I got really interested in the part that you were saying that there's more diversity in the kinds of people who are engaged in open data nowadays and the people who initially were there are also going on. And when you were then in the end talking about the politics and engagement, mm -hmm. how do you see that these are overlapping, that there's more diversity in who's in there and there's also more need to have like a practically engaged idea of how we're going to address the political implications of the open data? So when we're speaking about um, inclusion and diversity and even if we're going in, into a gender equity chapter that actually just look at binary gender, um, we still have a lot of work to do. So when we're looking at it basically in the f last five years, when we're speaking about indigenous community, we also see it in the last five years. So yes, we're getting a bit more inclusive but not or diverse, but not as diverse as we would like to see. And there's a lot more work that starts to be done um, either in the IODC spaces that we have in the International Open Data Conference, we saw it in the OG, Open Government Partnership Summit last week, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, it's On one hand, it's basically making sure that the data we collect does look, for example, a gender, which is something that sounds very like basic but does not happen. And on the other hand is how we actually, when we're fostering leaders, when we're thinking about thought leadership, we're thinking also about women and non-binary people and not only about men. Um, as we said, like most of the people in the beginning were men from the global north. So speaking about that, how we also reinforce people from the global, not enforce, but like get more people from the global south and more 
hearing. And I think the regional chapter shows really amazing point of view that are coming from the global south, the people from the global north not necessarily knows. So I think more reading about that and engaging in conversation between north to south can also help to create that. And I think that there's, there's two other elements there. One is the sectoral turn, I think, has really helped that diversity because you recognise you don't need uh, just a data specialist, you need an anti-corruption specialist, you need uh, those people to come together. And so I think what we've got is sectors where you've... I, and it's interesting to explore those spaces where it's been data-led, where someone's come and said, look, I, I think data can help here, but I need to find the specialist on the domain, or where it's come from the domain itself where, where practitioners have said, look, we... We've started to identify there's a data problem here. Let's get the technical specialists in. And I think lots more teams are created that way now than, than just having uh, someone who says, look, we've got to do something cool with a data set and, and let's get started. Um, I think uh, linked to that, though, there's been a very conscious effort to do that. So people like IDRC through the Open Data for Development Network really investing in uh, bringing people to conferences, getting people networked. And I think that links again to this kind of continued movement building needed is that didn't happen organically that that needed support that needed investment to say you know the agriculture specialist who's not sure if this is a thing you know they need some support to come along to the first thing and, and explore it and work out that this is something that they can get their head around uh, and I think another part of that is finding the ways of having a conversation that doesn't uh, go over people's heads by being all about data formats and technologies, but is much more about the stories of change. It's constant con conscious effort of trying to get more people on board. So any more questions in the room? Could speak into the microphone. Um, I'm curious about both the subject of uh, the dark implications of open data and the AI side. So there are shifts in machine learning so that there are methodologies to allow data to remain on the edge on people's devices, for example, mm. which means that there will be learning without accessing data. Are there any implications in, in your research of this new... implications of what this might mean for the open data as a whole? So the simple answer is no, there's nothing that came up in this particular piece of research but because we didn't dig deeply into that. I guess the quick gut reaction would be we should look at what's happened over the last 10 years and learn from it around where theoretical decentralisation is there but in practice what works as a business model is the thing that centralises and so we need to really look at the economics of that as well as the, the what's technically possible. Um, uh, I had a question around if uh, a team is doing benchmarking on SDG uh, basis and if they want to uh, make use of the existing open data to create the correlation with their research and create a cross-cutting so that they can understand the bigger picture. So what would be the best way for them to start uh, looking into? Very good question. Um, the National Statistics Chapter? Yeah, yes. probably, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, so there is a chapter about national statistic uh, in, uh, in the book under communities and sectors, and it also shows the shift that national statistics have done in order to um, basically use open data also mainly to monitor the sustainable development goals, 
Um, there are some data sets that do exist to help to do that. There are some data sets that do not exist at all. And that's a beginning of a conversation. Looking at the UN Data Forum, for example, last year, starting to speak about open data, it's already like a big shift. Um, how you can find those data sets, though, in all the countries, that's a different question. As we said, like Portal used to have all this data, now they have a lot less of them. So. I guess the, the one other place it comes up in the, the book is in the land ownership chapter. Yeah. There's a, a mention there of work that Land Portal have been doing to map the availability of data to meet SDG indicators. Because one of the interesting challenges, as, as you probably know with so many indicators, is the flows of data to actually measure them aren't necessarily there yet. Um, and I guess it, though that the other link there is that SDGs have called on us to build new data infrastructures in order to, to be able to monitor and measure and thinking about how those can be open is, is an important piece of the picture. Thank you. I suppose so I'm just looking at, um, at the feed on social media, and uh, there's a particularly amusing exchange about data's identity crisis <laughs> yes. going on in one part of the Twitter sphere. Where are we? The, <laughs> the, well, the data itself can have an identity crisis, or is it the people, etc. I suppose just... Um, when I know when you look when I'm actually looking at that thread, so one of the things in there is so when the open data movement started, and it was quite purist. It was focused on a lot on corruption issues, strengthening democracy, empowering citizens, and that did start in the global north. You know, and in those highly developed countries now, a lot more of the attention is now on how do we make money, how do we grow our economies from this. So the tension between these two, how do we make sure we don't lose track of some of those still vital issues about strengthening democracy and fighting corruption? So I don't want my every answer to be the sectoral turn. But, but, I think, <laughs> but I think that that that's what really comes out is when, when you look at open data in general, yeah, we saw many different sales pitches. So I'd argue we've always had these, these different movements there, wanting it for economic development, wanting it for democratisation, from a pure transparency kind of normative point of view. Um, all those arguments were there, and over those first kind of three, four years of, of open data spreading globally, people picked the argument that would work for the audience they were talking to. So you see, as global financial crisis hits, our arguments became economic. I don't think it was that suddenly we discovered the economic value. I think it was much more about the politics around. There is that big question of, does the narrative we use change what we do? Uh, and at the high level, yes, maybe it does in terms of what government policy is. When we get, though, to those sectoral-focused areas, the anti-corruption practitioners are using open data as a tool of anti-corruption. The private sector are using it in particular ways. But Carla's probably got something to add to, to that on private sector. I'd like to add something quickly. When I first discovered that, for example, Montevideo was first to open, you know, to publish their open data records, you know, even before, you know, the Global North, I was actually uh, very surprised in a good way. I don't think this needs to be a trade-off. And I'm speaking from my experience in Latin America, where we do need much more, um, you know, digging into sustainable business models and actually that open data contributing to economic benefits is equally important because we're talking about socioeconomic development. So I don't think, for example, in Latin America, the, the transparency and accountability movement has lost any track. It's even more important than ever, but the economic um, uh, evidence or the economic push is, you know, is starting to be also in the map, which I think is good. The narratives are always always been there. I think we, like, when we're looking at it, we can't say that, like, it started as anti-corruption and they moved to be, like, we could get more money out of it. McKinsey research came in 2012, I think. Yeah, so it's two years after, so we're not that far. 
Um, and I think we also need to sell, change our cell pitch and what we need in order to get some data sometimes. It's not a bad thing. Uh, we can also say better public de service delivery. It's also a pitch that we do for open data um, a lot. Uh, and we're discussing it as well in the book. So there's like what you can say, it's economic development, but it's more of a government focus of how to make better service delivery. So we have all of these. Question over here in the room. Thanks. Uh, hi, I'm Rafa. You know me well. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you oh, about something you mentioned. You said that there has been threats against the open data movement, and I was wondering if you could uh, say more about these things and what are the critical challenges that are being faced in this community. Yeah. So I guess there's uh, one is a, a loss of interest threat. So one is uh, funders, policymakers, others simply moving on, leaving, uh, thinking either job is done, we've finished, or just there's no longer any interest in this. And you see that in two places. One, you see it where they're just moving on completely. The other is where their agenda is being widened. So one of the things you see is people who are hired into cities to run the open data team are now given the wider data analytics brief and running the whole kind of data programs, and then their attention gets shifted onto big data, proprietary data, data sets that no one else can see and use and open this kind of drops away. So I think there's that threat of uh, uh, attention shifting. I think the other threat is uh, privacy arguments being used to push back on openness of sensitive data. So in the case of, say, beneficial ownership transparency, knowing who ultimately owns and runs companies, um, because we've seen threats... Of, of abuse of data, of abuse of our personal data by large firms, those same sorts of arguments are used to say, well, look, we can't open up this data for transparency purposes because you're getting into privacy and privacy has become a kind of, uh, again, a binary card rather than, as we find in the chapter, something that can be dealt with in a more nuanced way. There's other threats out there, but that's probably the, the key we see. I think we're tight on time. Yeah. No, I just want to say that like we see um, other leaders in civil society creating organization and moving on, we also see politicians created like a lot of policies and moving on. Uh, UK and the US is an example for that. So you have these champions moving on and how do you actually help other countries to become champions and release this data? Um, and like basically, do we need to wait in political cycles or can we make it something that is normalized? How do we do that? That's also a question. Unfortunately, we're now, we're just running out of time. I'm very sorry uh, to the people who are now joining in the data identity debate on Twitter. Keep going, the, keep going. <laughs> we'll come join you. Yes. Uh, just hunt for it. You'll find it, you'll find it with the right search words. I've given enough clues away. The, so I want to thank uh, Tim and Moore for their time. Uh, the, I'd ask everyone in the room just give a quick round of applause if you could. And also thank them and all of the authors and all, the, all of the contributors for their work on the book. It's a, you know, it's a great piece of work. I know myself, as I mentioned to him just beforehand, I was talking with a journalist at a large international newspaper last week and explaining the concepts of indigenous, indigenous peoples and data sovereignty. And I could just say, here you go, read this thing. <laughs> it's easier for me to find that thing. I can just send a link now. More things like that make, make all of our lives easier and more useful and move things forward. So thank you very much. Uh, if we want to continue the conversation, obviously, as we said, at State of Open Data yeah. is the... Hashtag. Is the hashtag Twitter account, which isn't on screen. That's the, the URL up here is where to get to the book. It's open access. Uh, and hopefully we'll see some of you at the ODI Fridays lecture next week. Thank you all. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.